0: Every student pilot has to have at least three hours of night flying experience and it can be a visual feast for student and instructor as they fly over terrain that looks so different than during the day. Landing and taking off from a big airport at night is different too. Fortunately the controllers are there to guide you. But what happens if they don't know where you are? How could something like that happen? Well it did happen. And we'll hear all about it on this episode of I Laughed. I learned about flying from that. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 15 of Flying Magazine's I Learned About Flying From That podcast, brought to you by the Avemco Aviation Insurance Company. I'm Rob Ryder, and on today's program, We'll hear the story of how a student pilot and his instructor found themselves lined up for takeoff on a runway at Port Columbus International Airport. But the controllers didn't know they were there, and they had cleared another plane, a big one, to land on the same runway. We'll talk with the pilot right after this word from Avemco. As pilots, we're taught never to assume the tanks are full or the plane is safe. And when you rent, never assume you're covered by your flight school or FBO's insurance. Their policy is to protect them, not you. Injure someone or damage property, and you could still be sued. Bend a wingtip, and you could still be responsible for the deductible or more. A quick visit to avemco.com slash flying can protect you with Avemco renter's insurance for as little as $95. Visit avemco.com slash flying or call 800-338-8705 today and be sure you're covered next time you fly. Now, I learned about flying from that. Mike Thiergartner, welcome to the I Laughed podcast. How are you? I am fantastic. How are you, Rob? I'm doing great, thank you. Mike, you're from Marysville, Ohio, about a 40-minute drive to Columbus, and in a small airplane, single-engine plane, probably doesn't take more than about 15 minutes to fly from Marysville over to Port Columbus. And that is the site of your ILAft incident, which was as much a surprise as it was to you and to your instructor as it was to a tower full of controllers and an air crew on a much bigger airplane. But before we get to that, tell me a little bit about, if you will, Mike, what got you into flying and uh, so we can lead up to what uh, became your incident, your your I laughed lesson. How'd you get
1: started? Well, I guess it all kind of started uh, very young. Um, of course, my, my father flew and my uncle George had a, farm implement dealership and he also sold piper airplanes and uh, one day uh, every Sunday afternoon rather they a bunch of farmers would gather at Uncle George's airstrip with their airplanes and they'd you know hanger talk and my dad would hang out with them and he was uh, young and my uncle George said Carl would you like to buy that piper cub over there I said I'll, nobody's been flying it He said, I'll sell it to you for $1,000. So my dad bought a a Piper Cub. What year was that? uh, That was probably 1950 or 1951. My goodness. Um, Yes. and So my dad flew that uh, Piper Cub for a few years, and I came along, and they needed a washer and dryer to take care of my diapers. And uh, so my father sold the Piper Cub to buy a washer and dryer.
0: Did you ever ask him if he thought it was a good deal?
1: Well, he said he didn't have much choice at the time, but he <laughs> said he wished he still had that plane. But However, I found that airplane a couple of years ago, and uh, uh, a pilot owns that airplane in Canada now, and uh, became friends with him through telephone and Facebook and uh, sent some pictures. So my father has his current airplane uh, picture hanging on his wall. Have you asked him if he'd sell it back to you? (laughs) No, no, I did did not ask him. He said it's in perfect condition.
0: Oh, how exciting is that? Great to see that an airplane being passed on to somebody else is still enjoying uh, flight and has a good home. That's great. I'm glad it's in
1: perfect condition. It is.
0: And so so that that got you interested in flying. When did you get your private ticket?
1: Well, Uh I got my private ticket in uh, 1975. And, um, you know, I joined a, a, flying club, a local flying club around Marysville here called the hummingbirds. And the hummingbirds was, uh, a dozen or so, uh, mostly guys. over a couple of ladies in the club and, uh, we kept the dues, uh, low and the, uh, the flight per hour, uh, you know, the hourly rate low, just enough to pay our bills. And, uh, we bought our own, uh, Fuel. If I remember, we were paying fifty-six cents a gallon for. Oh my uh, goodness! <laughs> for gasoline. So that was. Those were fun days, and uh, so we flew off of uh, a grass strip at my flight instructor's farm, and in the winter we would take the plane into the county airport at Marysville. And the, and the what el- were the winter?
0: And that was was that the Musketeer?
1: That was Beechcraft Musketeer. Aha. Uh-huh. And, uh, so we had a lot of fun. Uh, you know, Bill, my instructor, was a very experienced pilot, and uh, it was, he was a great instructor. Um, but One of the things we did as a group, uh, the hummingbirds, the flying group, is um, during the summer they would have what they call a fun day. And they all gather around and we'd have a picnic and we'd take turns flying the airplane and uh, what we did is uh, we'd have a you know, mark mark on the field on the on the grass uh, for a spot takeoff, and the closest to that spot, um, and then you 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 went out to a certain altitude, did a 180, came back across the field, and as soon as you did a 180, they let go of a, a helium balloon, and you had to try to break that balloon with your propeller. Wow, which uh, was a lot of fun, not as easy as you might think. Well, and the I, balloon is going up at a pretty good rate. I would think
0: it would be exceptionally difficult to, to point. Yes. So so you became, uh, it was kind of like uh, a little air combat maneuvering there in the Musketeer.
1: It was, and, and you had to be an experienced pilot to do it by yourself. So needless to say, I was still a student pilot uh, the first time we did that. And so Bill was with me and took me three times to, to get the balloon because it's, uh, you can, you always undershot it you'd be way below it. Well then we'd fly to uh, the town of Ostrander, circle the elevator, come back across the field and we timed that as far as you know timing and then we had, um, when we came back across the field uh, you had a a lunch bag, a paper sack full of field lime and you would come back over the field uh, low and try to drop that bag of lime on the target on the runway. You'd come back around, circle around, and uh, land. And then we had a contest for spot landing. So it was a good, great time, and uh, uh, just the way we enjoyed spending time with each other.
0: So you got some fellowship, you got some great, uh, great friends. You've got some improvement, uh, some techniques to improve your stick and rudder skills, and uh, then then you then you become a bombardier at the end of it. That's not
1: bad. <laughs> That's <laughs> how, right. Uh...
0: How were how were your spot landing? Seriously, Mike, did you get pretty good at it? Cause tricycle gear airplane. It's not it's not super heavy. The musketeer is pretty maneuverable little aer- airplane. So were you pretty good at it?
1: Well, you know that that was something that you know we uh, we did once a year. But uh, uh, I have to say, no, I was not very good at it. I never won, <laughs> but, but it was a sure a lot of fun.
0: Well, Marysville is close to Columbus, Ohio. Not not all that far up uh, to the northwest of Columbus, but Port Columbus Correct. International Airport, KCMH. Uh, that is the place where. Uh, Back in 1964, uh, a TWA 707 was headed for Port Columbus and inadvertently landed at KOSU at Ohio State University Airport. And uh, I remember being in Columbus at that time and hearing that when they stripped it of everything possible and took off uh, and trying to get it off, got it off the ground. But the noise from that 707 miles away could be heard on its takeoff. And that is something that plays into what happened to you at Port Columbus International Airport. You want to tell us a little bit about the story and how it all developed that you wound up on the runway at uh, Port Columbus getting ready to take off. I think uh, you were getting ready to take off to the east, weren't you?
1: Uh, That's correct. Um, Well, it kind of all started, um, uh, had a training flight scheduled with my instructor, Bill, at his grass strip in Watkins, Ohio. And uh, so we met over at Bill's and uh, uh, got the plane all pre-flighted. And he said, well, go over to the barn, turn the runway lights on. So we had, uh, on this grass strip, we had three runway lights on each side of the runway. (laughs) Uh, One set of lights uh, directly in the center. And then um, I think it was three or 400 yards each way of center was another runway light. So you had to. Um, when you landed at night, your uh, objective was to touch down at, at or before the center runway lights. Uh, so there was no in runway lights to mark, but uh, it, it worked very well. And uh, uh, so we, I turned on the runway lights. <clears throat> uh, we got in the plane and uh, turned the key, and not, you know, the propeller barely moved. Uh oh. So we were, we were sitting there with a dead battery. And I thought, well, you know, that's that's all for the night. You know, button it up and head home. And but Bill said, now, you know, I'll go get the Buick and we'll jump the battery and we'll be good to go. So he said, you stay here. I'll I'll get the Buick and we ran the jumper cables in through the baggage compartment. And of course, you got a 14 volt battery in the airplane and a 12 volt Buick. But uh, you know, it jumped, started the engine and he unhooked the cables, backed the car away, and and uh, climbed aboard, and we took off. Were you excited about what you were going to do? Well, you know, I didn't really think too much about it. I thought, well, okay, this is just going to be another training flight. You know, it's, it's, you know, the battery is dead, no big deal. You know, I grew up on the farm. We jumped, uh, you know, vehicles and tractors, and <laughs> 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 we're just, you know, we started the airplane. It's running, you know. We, we were going to go up and do our thing, and... Uh, so I didn't really think, you know, too much about it, to be honest with you.
0: So you got on your way and you decided that your
1: destination was going to be Port Columbus? Well, we did some, uh, you know, some maneuvers first. We, you know, did uh, several different, you know, typical training maneuvers. I soloed uh, several times, had uh, quite, you know, decent amount of hours. But uh, Bill wanted to, after we got done with the uh, uh, maneuvers and I think we might have done a couple of touch and goes, but he said, well, let's, uh, you know, it's getting dark. Let's go to Port Columbus. We're going to have some big airport, uh, experience and, uh, you know, in the dark. So, you know, but now it's, you know, it's, it's, it's dark. Um, the sun has set. Um, and, uh, so we headed to Port Columbus and, you know, Rob, there, there wasn't a cloud in the sky. There was no moon. It was just about as dark as, a night can be oh my and uh, we're flying along and you know he's pointing out different things he said there's the Columbus Zoo and you know there's OSU Airport and he's coaching me on navigation and communication radio communications and so forth And and uh, so I'm doing all the flying and all the radio communication and uh, we get permission to land at uh, Port Columbus and uh, Fort Columbus has two parallel runways, uh, their main runways. uh, And and this was, uh, uh, we're landing to the east, so we had runway 10 left and runway 10 right. And we were cleared to land for uh, 10 left. And uh, so we proceeded to land, and we landed, and he's coaching me on how to, you know, to change, you you know, from one radio to the other to, you know, for... The different controllers we needed to talk to, and so forth, and and I'm following their instructions. And we asked for permission to taxi to ten right for departure, and they, you know, instructed us and guided us over there. And you know, we're you know we had to circle all the way around the Columbus terminal.
0: So you had a relatively long taxi around the airport to get to the right side runway.
1: Uh, well, that's correct. It was probably a mile, mile and a half around the uh, Port Columbus terminal, and you know, we're looking up at uh, you know these big, you know, airplanes, the you know, 707, 727s, and uh, you know the Eastern Airlines and TWA and that type of thing. And uh, those airlines, of course, no longer exist. But you know, I remember seeing a either an l 1011 or a DC10 uh, taxiing in, and we had to we had to hold. For, the, for that plane to, uh, of course, have uh, the right-of-way to <laughs> get taxied over the terminal, but we eventually made it over to, t- to uh, 10 right, and uh, we were given permission to taxi into position and hold on runway 10 right, and this is a 10,000 foot runway, and we're sitting there on the numbers, lined up with the runway, waiting for permission to take off. And, you know, we're sitting there at idle, and, uh, you know, just sitting there for, you know, a few minutes. And Bill thought, you know, just rev the engine up just to keep it from filing up, you know. So I put a little more pressure on the brakes and pushed the throttle in. And, and uh, lo and behold, was, uh, we were quite surprised at what we heard. And you and heard what? Uh, we heard abort, abort, abort. And the next thing we knew, there was a 707 uh aborting landing and flying over our heads at uh way less than 50 feet i don't know how high he was but oh uh when, when he was uh aborting the landing we looked up and you could actually see a red orangish red glow coming out of the tailpipe of those turbo uh, turbofans. and uh gosh the noise was something it was uh it just it's Made the plane kind of just shake.
0: I bet it did. I bet you it was. They were probably straight turbo jets in those days. It's probably even noisier than a turbo fan.
1: Oh yeah, yeah they were turbo jets. Yes, yeah, of course.
0: Well, what was the upshot of this? I mean, how is it that they knew to tell this other guy to abort? Uh, you were sitting there. They didn't talk to you. What was the what was the upshot? What where did it where did the communications break down?
1: Well. You know, uh, we don't know for sure, but uh, what happened is, we we're sitting there, when we pulled the, the engine back to idle, uh, after probably 30 seconds or a minute, uh, you know, we did, no longer had enough electricity to run the nav lights. And our, you know, to our surprise, what obviously happened is our radio went out as well. So we're sitting there just, you know, happy as, as ever on the numbers, on a 10,000-foot runway on a busy airport, pitch-black night, and they couldn't see us. And we couldn't hear them. So we heard no chatter on the radio, no air traffic. And for what they thought, you know, we were gone. They, so had, soon gi- as
0: we, they had given you permission to take off, but you did not hear it.
1: Well, we can only assume they gave us permission to take off, but... Uh, we didn't hear if they, if and when they did. They may have assumed that we just took it upon ourselves to take off because for what they knew, they couldn't see us there. So after they, uh, the 707 pilot acknowledged the go-around and they had a couple of transactions back and forth, um, the controller asked who that was on 10 right, and my instructor, Bill, grabbed the microphone. This was before you had, we didn't have headsets. Had a speaker and a mic. So, speaker and a mic, and... So Bill grabbed the microphone and said, well, this is 4017 Tango. And the controller says, well, we thought you were gone. Oh Get no. out of here now.
0: Oh, no. There was nothing heard. You didn't hear any of those calls until you shoved the throttle forward to keep the engine from, from maybe getting all fouled up. That brought enough voltage up. And that's when you heard the abort call, and that's when you reestablished communications with the tower.
1: That's correct, Rob. And uh, we were quite surprised. And, uh, you know, of course, the experience we just had with the 707s, you know, screaming over our head was something that, uh, you know, you'll never forget. And uh, we took off and immediately and headed back to the grass strip there at Watkins and, and, uh, we were both kind of quiet on the way home. I, th- I think Bill, you know, Bill obviously knew the, that uh, how significant this event was, and I was kind of like, "Man, I hope this doesn't happen all the time." And, and uh, but uh, uh, we came back to the to the grass strip, and you know, and there were the 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 six runway lights, and I put it back there on the grass strip right on the center runway lights and had a perfect landing. So it was, we taxied uh, to the tie down and shut everything down and tied it down. And, and uh, I went home.
0: Well, tell you what, Mike, let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll shed a little more light on what you learned about flying from that. How about that?
1: That sounds great, Rob.
0: For 60 years, Avemco has been the only aircraft insurance company that lets you speak directly with a decision-maker empowered to approve coverage based on your unique situation. Call 800-338-8705 for a free quote and you'll save an instant 5% for being an I listener. Save even more for recurrent training, a new rating, or participating in a Fast Team Wings course. Call 800-338-8705 or visit avemco.com slash flying. Now, back to iLab. We're back with Mike Thiergartner, who almost got run over in his beach musketeer by a 707 landing at Port Columbus International Airport. Mike, what is it that got the controller's attention to to call the abort to the 707? Well,
1: when we... Uh, Advance the throttle to you know grab the engine up You know obviously the you know the alternator came back online, and and uh, the lights came back on and you know The controller is looking at uh, you know the 707 and he sees our landing light nav lights there on the numbers and uh, That's when he you know Came to realize that we were still there or there was an airplane there. He wasn't sure who it was, but uh uh you know, I think, you know, he thought that to, we took it upon ourselves to take off. Um, so I don't know if he gave inst- uh, permission for us to take off or uh, just assumed we were gone. Because your
0: radios at that point were not functioning.
1: That's correct. We were sitting there just, you know, totally in the dark uh, as far as visibility, as far the controller couldn't see us, and we couldn't hear him.
0: Well, Mike, let's talk about the lessons that you learned from this, because there were several things that maybe on their own would not have made any difference at all. But put together in the scenario, it almost became a deadly incident. What did you learn about flying from that?
1: Well, I think the first thing is, is, you know, if you have a dead battery on the airplane, you're better off just to leave it parked and uh, have a mechanic take a look at it and, and determine what's wrong. So that was the first thing, you know, we jumped a a, a dead battery on an airplane and and we took off. And then, you know, on top of that, we did some night flying. Uh, I think Bill probably assumed that, you know, maybe there was a light left on or something that discharged the battery and, you know, the alternator would charge it back up and everything would be just normal, but uh, uh, that wasn't the case. And I think another thing is, you know, we should have done uh, more of an instrument scan, and our instrument scans would have shown us uh, that, you know, we weren't getting a charge and, and uh, you know, that there was a low voltage. I think it was a low voltage indicator on the panel that uh, we probably weren't monitoring. Uh, or actually, I believe it was a voltage uh, gauge. But uh, uh, if we'd have been monitoring that, we would have seen that, uh, you know, uh, some some indicators that uh, uh would have let us know that you know we need to be concerned three things starting with a dead battery
0: even if you had jumped it and flown around during the day probably wouldn't have made much difference if you'd just stayed in the pattern at watkins
1: that's right you don't need a battery to fly uh, you just you know you, you and you, you know as long as you got enough rpm you would still have your your radio but uh yeah, during the day it wouldn't have been much of a problem at all.
0: And then, without communication, then it became an issue there. So night flying, they couldn't visually see you. They would have known during the daytime if you'd have been sitting there and not had radio communication. They could have sent somebody out to get you the heck off the runway and a and a. Month. Well, that's
1: that's true. Sure.
0: Sure, And then that all-important scan, not just the six-pack, but the status of the electrical system. Modern-day alternators will produce full voltage even when the engine isn't idle, but older airplanes that had generators rather than more modern alternators wouldn't produce enough voltage to run the lights and radios unless the engine RPM was at, what, up in the mid-range, say above 1,400 RPM, sitting there on the runway at night at idle became a serious problem.
1: That, yeah, that's correct. And, you know, Bill and I had a discussion about that uh, in subsequent uh, uh, training lessons. And uh, you know, after that, I did. You know, that was one of the main instruments I kind of looked at as far as uh, uh, you know uh, systems on the airplane. They <laughs> uh, just say I paid a lot of more attention to electrical uh, issues uh, after that event.
0: And, and I'm sure it's kept you out of any other sort of uh, difficulties in the rest of the time you flew. Oh, sure. That's correct. Well, Mike, I really appreciate the time you spent with us today. I cannot imagine the, the feeling, percussion or concussion of the sound of those turbojets as they spooled up and that 707 went around. It must have shaken you to the core.
1: Oh, gosh, Rob. I'll tell you, you, you could just about feel the vibration in your bones when that uh, plane went over our heads. And uh, uh, it wasn't until, you know, much later that I realized how significant that could have been. Oh, uh, yeah. I was, I was still a student pilot, and the uh, first time I'd ever been in, been to a, you know, controlled airport. And uh, it's quite, uh, quite an educational event, something that uh, you'll never forget. Indeed.
0: Mike Thiergartner, thanks so much for being on iLaft. Rob, it's my pleasure. Great takeaways from this episode. For me, it's the importance of scanning not just the primary instruments, but all of the gauges, to know as much about all the airplane systems as possible, and to detect issues before they become problems. As we bring this episode to a close, I hope you'll subscribe and share it with your flying friends and aviation enthusiasts. You can find I Laughed wherever you get your podcasts, or you can go to www.flyingmag.com and choose I Laughed Podcast from the drop-down menu. We'll be posting new episodes every couple of weeks, so you can hear the first-hand accounts of the flying lessons that sometimes only experience can teach. For Avemco Aviation Insurance and Flying Magazine, fueling the passion for flight since 1927. I'm Rob Ryder. Catch you next time on I Learned About Flying From That.